0: at fbcaa.org/live, we want to thank you for listening and pray that you will be edified. Join us now as Pastor Postif opens God's Word, Romans chapter ten. It says, "Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they might be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge." For they, being ignorant of God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own righteousness, have not submitted to the righteousness of God. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. That is, it means he's the end of using the law to attain righteousness. He's just the finish of that whole idea, the, 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 the end of it. It can't, can't be true. Uh, to everyone who believes, for Moses writes about the righteousness, which is of the law, the man who does those things shall live by them. But the righteousness of faith speaks in this way. Do not say in your heart, who will ascend into heaven? That is to bring Christ down from above or who will descend into the abyss? That is to bring Christ up from the dead. What does it say? The word is near you in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith, which we preach. And here it is, that if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. For the Scripture says, whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord over all is rich to all who call upon him. For whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Can I just emphasize that, friends? No matter how bad you've been, no matter what fix you've gotten yourself into, no matter what confusion you have, whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. God knows all about your problems. (laughs) You don't have to tell him. He knew about them all before you got mixed up into them in the first place. So we, we just want to make sure that invitation is clear. Believe on the Lord. Call upon his name confess him as your lord and savior you will be saved verse 14 how then shall they call on him whom they have not believed and how shall they believe in him of whom they have not heard and how shall they hear without a preacher and how shall they preach unless they are sent as it is written how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the gospel of peace who bring glad tidings of good things but they have not all obeyed the gospel For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our report? You ever read Isaiah 53 in that light? People are not believing what we're telling them. And the question, who has believed our report, seems to have this answer. Very few people. So then faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. But I say, have they not heard? Yes, indeed. Their sound has gone out to all the earth and their words to the ends of of the world. You know where that's a quote what what passage he's quoting there? Isn't it isn't it the 19, is it the 19th Psalm? Yeah, it's Psalm 19. That speaks about the glory of God being displayed in in his handiwork. And Paul is using that by analogy to say that the gospel has gone out. He's 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 one of the ministers going around taking the word everywhere that he can to the ends of the earth. But I say, verse 19, did Israel not know? First, Moses says, I will provoke you to jealousy by those who are not a nation. I will move you to anger by a foolish nation. But Isaiah is very bold and says, I was found by those who did not seek me. I was made manifest to those who did not ask for me. But to Israel, he says, all day long, I have stretched out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. I'll just take you right back to the beginning of the chapter. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they would be saved. Still today, Paul would say the same exact thing as he did then, and we join him in that prayer and in that desire for the Jewish people, but are grateful that God has given salvation to the Gentiles too. So, amen for that. All right, Jansen, we're going to invite you to come and uh, give us the word of God tonight. Thank you for preparing, and we look forward to it. Couldn't help but
1: thinking think uh, about the fact that as we were sung that last verse of that last song there, we had a dear brother that was enjoying that blissful moment Amen. of seeing uh, his Savior, Brother Chuck, who passed away uh, earlier this week. And uh, what a joy he, what joy he is experiencing now. And uh, we sang about looking forward to that day. Well, he's, he's there. He's enjoying it now. And I don't think he'd uh, come back for anything at this point. Uh, he was looking forward to that day. <clears throat> well, I invite you this evening to turn in your Bibles to First Timothy chapter 3. 1 Timothy chapter 3 this evening. We've been making our way verse by verse through this letter, uh, written by Paul to, uh, to Timothy, who is in Ephesus at this time, trying to set straight some issues that were going on in the church, false teaching that was being taught, and uh, all kinds of issues, disputes, and, and quarrels about things that were of uh, unimportant to the gospel of Christ. And uh, we saw in chapter 2, in the latter half, Uh, Paul addresses the specific conduct of of men and then gives a large majority of the end of the chapter to conduct of women in the church. And uh, that uh, instruction to women in in verses uh, really uh, uh, 9 to 15 is that women are to prioritize inward beauty, that is a holy life, rather than outward appearance. Women are to demonstrate this holiness, Paul says, through modest apparel and through ultimately good works, which uh, modest apparel being one of those. Furthermore, Paul says women are to be quiet learners, not to be teachers over men, but to be fully submissive, not exercise authority over men. Verses eleven and twelve of chapter twelve <laughs> chapter two told us this. And Paul then grounds these commands we saw last time in God's Role for women from creation. This isn't uh, this isn't because of some cultural kind of uh, uh, reason that Paul t- tells uh, women are that women are not to teach. Rather, he grounds his reason in the created order that men were created first, then women, and then he gives this recount uh, of of uh, the woman being deceived, and uh, and the man was not deceived, but the woman was and fell into transgression. And um, Eve was deceived, of course, by the devil, and Adam, though, had no excuse for his disobedience. He knew right well what God had told him not to do in this case, and yet he did it anyways. He listened to uh, to the woman and took of the fruit. Still, uh, even though really the uh, the responsibility falls on Adam, we know that even from uh, from Romans, uh, there are could be still this stigma, we said, that women may feel of having been the first to, of the two to, to sin and disobey God's command. And so Paul then says women can be freed from this kind of stigma through godly child rearing. And that's what we said childbearing means here. It's not really just about the delivery, but rather child rearing. That if women uh, are to really take to heart their role and to raise children in a godly manner, with faith and love and holiness and self-control, rather than try to dominate in the church and take positions of leadership and, and teaching, but to be submissive in their role, uh, they can redeem themselves or deliver themselves from this kind of stigma that they may be feeling. Now, in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 to 7, Paul continues his focus on proper church conduct. We may not think about it in that way at first when we read it, but really that's what it is. He's addressed uh, men, that they are to lift up uh, their holy hands when they pray. He addresses women, and now he uh, addresses a more even specific group of people, a a subcategory, and that is the church leaders, pastors. Paul lays down here in the first seven verses of chapter 3, 16 different qualifications that pastors or prospective pastors must demonstrate to be qualified for the ministry. And we'll give our attention this evening just to the first three verses, and uh, we'll look at the others uh, next time, Lord willing. But in these first three verses, we find the first 13 qualifications of pastors Now let me read all seven verses for you this evening, and then we'll look at the first few in the time that we have remaining. Paul says this in 1 Timothy 3, verse 1, This is a faithful saying. If a man desires the position of a bishop, he desires a good work. A bishop then must be blameless. The husband of one wife, temperate, sober-minded, of good behavior, hospitable, able to teach, Not given to wine, not violent, not greedy for money, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not covetous. One who rules his own house well, having his children in submission with all reverence. For if a man does not know how to rule his own house, how will he take care of the church of God? Not a novice, lest he be puffed up with pride. uh, With pride, he fall into the same condemnation as the devil." Moreover, he must have a good testimony among those who are outside, lest he fall into reproach and the snare of the devil. Let me pray before we look at the text this evening and ask for the Lord's help as we as we seek to apply this this evening. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this opportunity to look into your word once again as we close out this Lord's day. Lord, help us to understand uh, what you have for us to learn this evening. Lord, In no sense is this message meant to elevate uh, any of the leadership of the church. Rather, it is to humble us, Lord, and recognize our our duty to be godly men. But, Lord, also that uh, this applies also uh, to all people generally, all Christians, Lord, that we are to conduct ourselves in a, a way that is pleasing in your sight. So, Lord, help us, we pray. May your spirit work in us, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Now, as we look at verse 1, as we begin this evening, Paul says uh, this at the beginning, this is a faithful saying. Well, what does Paul exactly mean by this is a faithful saying? Well, we've read this already uh, in 1 Timothy, back in chapter 1, verse 15, and typically the clause... uh, that is, this is a faithful saying, is used in the pastoral epistles to refer to truths that were accepted and passed down through church tradition as truth. Uh, 1 Timothy 1.15, like I just said, uses this clause. Also chapter 4, verse 9, and uh, in 2 Timothy 2.11, and then also in Titus 3.8. So it's a familiar saying and one used typically, again, to refer to truths that were accepted and passed down as, through the church uh, age as truth. Usually, though, these sayings incorporated motifs related to salvation. Uh, we primarily see this like uh, in 1 Timothy 2.15, although we made the case that the salvation here is not soteriological, but rather a, a deliverance from a kind of stigma. However, uh, here in chapter 3, verse 1, the saying relates to the office of overseer, which Paul is commending as a good work, and therefore is encouraging men to aspire to this office. A few observations uh, regarding the saying in verse 1 that I want to make here, um, where he says, The saying is this, if a man desires the position of a bishop, he desires a good work. Now, a few observations that I want to make is first is that the office is for men, not for women. Of course, this uh, accords well with what we just read in the end of chapter 2, where Paul instructs women to not be teachers, not to exercise authority, the office of, of pastor or bishop. Um, is just that. It is a teaching responsibility wherein you have to exercise authority and oversight. And so this is prohibited. Um, Women are prohibited from holding this office. It is for men. We'll note uh, that the office of pastor fundamentally requires exercising authority as the role entails a supervision of the flock in teaching and caring for the church And so fundamentally, as I said, it requires exercising authority. To be a pastor, there must also be a desire for the position. Paul says this here in the saying. He says, if a man desires the position of a bishop, he desires a good work. This is a good kind of desire in contrast to often what is a bad desire, as Paul uses language. It's not a desire uh, driven by selfish motives, but a desire to do a, a good work, as Paul puts it, something that is uh, honorable and, uh, and no, noble. Some argue that uh, desire should not necessarily be considered a qualification, or maybe in this sense we would even say pre-qualification. But honestly, it's, for me, it's hard to accept that a man who has no desire at all Uh, to be appointed as a pastor. If he has no desire for the office, it's hard to believe that he will be effective in his ministry, which inevitably will have rough patches and require a strong desire for that office in order to persevere in this work. You know, if he has no desire at all and the first, you know, kind of difficulty comes up, he might just say, well, that's it, you know. I didn't even want to be here in the first place. And so he leaves and goes and finds some other kind of work. So it's hard, it's hard to believe that a, a desire is not a prerequisite or a prequalification for this position. Paul commends the man who is compelled inwardly to be a bishop. Certainly, um, we, we wouldn't appoint someone who, you know, he he's kind of gone out and looked for every other job out there. and Well, I can't find anything, so I guess I'll do this, you know, as if it's a last resort. No, this is... This Paul is commending the kind of person that is, is driven in this, in this way, in this direction of wanting to be qualified, wanting to be a man used by God and to, and to fill this position for the glory of God. It's not just a last resort kind of job for someone who can't find some other kind of employment. Now, note that already I've used multiple terms to refer to the same office. The New King James here uses the word bishop, um, but other translations use the word overseer. These terms, both bishop or overseer, refer to the same role as pastor or elder. so really we can use all of these terms in an interchangeable kind of way. a pastor or elder, a bishop or overseer. We tend to shy away perhaps from bishop because of the kind of you know connotations that that can have with you know, some kind of higher level of authority over the pastor, uh, a board of some sort. Rather, you know, we stick to the terms typically of pastor or an elder, who is who is overseeing the flock, who is providing supervision and care for the for the flock. All these terms, as I said, can be used interchangeably to refer to the same position. So don't get yourself all confused about this. Uh, just understand that pastor and elder refers uh, to, the same, to the same office and the same person who holds that office. The pastor's position is one of oversight. He is to care for the needs of the flock and guard it from anyone who might want to cause it harm, whether through false teaching or some kind of other error or trying to you know, create quarrels and disputes in the church. He is to oversee them and protect them from such harm. It also requires certain administrative and leadership qualities as well. If you look forward at verse five, um, I think this idea is present here, where he says, "For if a man does not know how to rule his own house, how can he take care of the church of God? The church of God. How can he, how can he lead it well if he's failing to lead his home well?" Another observation that we make, just here from verse 1, is that a man who aspires to be a bishop or to fill this position, this office, desires, Paul says, a good work. He desires a good work. Good work in this context uh, is not really just simply a good deed. Rather, it is a, a task that is good in itself. It is a noble task. It is a noble calling it is not a easy task, but it is a good one and there are um, and it is good that there are aspiring pastors who are taking steps to fill the role of pastor in a church Now, we may wonder why did Paul need to emphasize that it is a good task? You know we kind of inherently think, well, of course it is a noble calling, a noble task, a good task well there may have been some, um, some influences here from the kind of issues that Paul is dealing with here in 1 Timothy, one being that the false teachers may have been causing men to not aspire to the office because of kind of the bad connotations that they were setting. You know, I don't want to be like them. I don't want to be, you know, a part of that kind of crowd that, you know, considered like them. And so Paul is encouraging men to, as, to aspire to this office Regardless of the the fact that some of these false teachers have kind of, you know, put a bad stain on the office through their their teaching and through their conduct. Of course, today there are many reasons men may not desire the office. Like we said, it's not an easy one. It's hard work. It's obviously not a job that you get to just get wealthy. You must deal with people and their problems. But Paul says it is a good work. It is a noble task. Paul then uh, moves on from this saying, and he gives us, as we said, 16 qualifications, 13 of which we'll try to cover in our time this evening. And uh, I just want to make a few remarks before we, before we look uh, at each of them individually. Of course, being a man and aspiring to the office are not the only qualifications necessary. They are all prerequisites or prequalifications, we might say, to the qualities that Paul is about to give in verses 2 through 7. These qualities are not uh, what the pastor is primarily to do, but what he is supposed to be, how he is supposed to conduct himself in, in behavior and in conduct. It's not a job description, but really a character assessment. Exception: The exception to this may be the one, uh, the one qualification, which is being able to teach, which does emphasize more of a skill, a spiritual giftedness. Note also that all of the qualities are observable, meaning others can look at them and observe them with, with their eyes, with their minds, and say, you know, yes, he has this kind of quality, or no, he doesn't. They're all observable Qualities. It is the role of the church to look at the man's life and assess whether he meets the criteria or not. And they have such authority to do this. It's not the man's job to decide this on his own, to walk into the building and say, I'm here, I'm ready, I'm qualified. Rather, he is to, to prove himself to be qualified for the position. And it is the, it is the responsibility of the church to, to assess him to assess his conduct, to assess his teaching, to assess, you know, his preparedness for the ministry, maybe he needs more training, maybe he needs a little bit more time to mature, you know, maybe he's a new believer and just needs more time to grow. Like Paul instructs that he is not to be to be new to the faith, a, a novice. The work of, of John MacArthur says this regarding the ministry, the office. He says the work of the ministry is is such a serious undertaking that no man may enter it based solely on his own desire. Anyone who would lead the church must be set apart to that responsibility by the church when it clearly recognizes his giftedness, virtue, and service by the standards given in verses 2 to 7. And that's very important to us. Note as well that these qualities are generally laid upon every Christian. Again, the exception being able to teach. We don't expect that every believer out there is able to have you know, to teach. They're not all gifted in that way. But generally all the other qualities given here are something that we should expect everyone to exhibit in their life as a Christian. We are all to be blameless and sober-minded of good behavior, hospitable, so on and so forth. And so these are not only laid upon the the, the aspiring pastor or the already pastor, but all Christians are to to, uh, take upon themselves this responsibility to demonstrate these qualities. In other words, the pastor is not meant to be the superhuman of the church, whose character far exceeds all others. All Christians should be striving to exemplify these qualities and root out the bad behaviors in their life these qualities are attainable Paul's not setting up these qualities as if, you know, these are these are far out of your reach but I'm going to put them there anyways, to, you know, if that were the case, it would weed every one of us out. <laughs> Rather, we under, have to understand that these are attainable. I do not mean by that that, you know, we exemplify them perfectly. Doesn't mean that the pastor will master them perfectly, but they should be spiritually mature in all of these areas striving to grow and to better exemplify them day by day. So as we look at the few this evening, we begin with Paul's first qualification of the fact that a bishop then must be blameless. Must be blameless. Again, we're talking about the character of this person, their conduct. He must be blameless. This is a moral word that means to be irreproachable in regard to one's character. Whether Paul means that a pastor should be blameless in all of these areas or blameless is the first in the list, it doesn't really change the meaning. In other words, some have said, well, blameless, uh, you know, Paul saying that a pastor, or a bishop, an elder needs to be blameless in all of these areas. Well, that's true. Um, but we might also take it as the first of many qualifications that first and foremost he is to be irreproachable in his his character. To be irreproachable means to be beyond criticism. He is to have upstanding character, to avoid any kind of accusations or criticism against him. It doesn't mean that he won't be criticized or accused of wrongdoing, but that when he is accused, After careful examination, his conduct demonstrates that there is nothing in his life that can disqualify him from the ministry. Paul then says, secondly, that a pastor, a bishop, must be the husband of one wife or a one-woman man, a more literal way of putting it. This, of course, means that uh, he cannot be practicing polygamy, first and foremost. He is to have one wife. But it doesn't mean just that. It means more than that. It means that he is to be faithful to his wife, not to be an adulteress or a fornicator. Rather, he is to be faithful. He is to show fidelity to his wife. Now, Paul is not prohibiting widowers from remarrying. If a pastor, you know, older in age, loses his wife, um, she passes. He, if, he, if he was faithful to her death, he is free to remarry. Hebrews 13:4 tells us this: He's freed from that. She's passed away. She, he's freed to then remarry. So Paul's not prohibiting remarriage uh, if, if a widow or if a spouse has passed away and he's, he's been faithful to her till her death. Secondly, Paul is not prohibiting unmarried men from becoming pastors. That's not what uh, Paul is saying here. Uh, this is not a requirement that he be married. However, we might, we might recognize that there are certain advantages to be uh, if a pastor is married. For instance, his wife can be a help to the ministry and uh, be alongside of him to help, them, help him and serve with him in the church to encourage him and to uh, just uh, to be a blessing to him. It also, can, uh, it also can protect the man from any temptations and from uh, any impurity you know, by creating a relationship that he shouldn't with some other woman in the church if he has a spouse there that he's married to and, and can protect him from any temptation. Paul then gives us a third qualification here. Not only is he to be blameless, the husband of one wife, but he is to be temperate, temperate. The word temperate means restrained in conduct, self-controlled, or level-headed. This same characteristic is required of of the wives of deacons. We'll see this actually just in a moment next time, or the time after in chapter 3, verse 11. And also... um, Paul commands that older men in Titus two verse two are also to be temperate they're to be self controlled level headed a pastor is to demonstrate self control and to be level headed not just in those things pertaining to ministry but to for things in all of life he is to demonstrate this quality there are many things that uh, are difficult in the ministry. And there are many decisions that are to be made in the ministry, and this requires him to be level-headed. He needs to be able to think clearly and to make good decisions and uh, to not act hastily, but rather to to be informed and to make good and godly decisions. Paul then instructs pastors, requires them, that is, to be sober-minded, In addition to these others, sober minded means being in control of oneself, prudent, thoughtful, making careful consideration so that when he takes action, he does it in a proper manner, responsible action. As I just said, the pastor is often making decisions that affect the church corporately, individuals in the church and his family and himself So he is not to act hastily, but be thoughtful in his decision-making, in his actions. He must act sensibly, not be being driven by emotions or by pressures from others. We know that pastors, teachers, will give an account before the Lord for their work. And I personally do not want to be irresponsible for any decisions or actions. I I want to be careful and thoughtful and prudent we've as church leadership and the council have had to make a lot of these decisions we just talked about the pandemic that we've experienced and is now over but we've had to make a lot of decisions and show prudence and all of that and uh it it takes a lot of work to think through and and not act hastily on you know the re- most recent news and you know what the what the you know the government is pushing and policies and and you know Whatever, whatever it may be, we have to just stop and think, what does the Lord want us to do, what is the most prudent and thoughtful thing to do, and what is best for the church? Paul also commands that pastors be of good behavior. That is character that is respectable and honored, honorable. How will a church listen to what the pastor has to say from the pulpit if his character is not respectable, not honorable? This is not something that he can demand that he be respected or honored. He is to behave in a manner that evokes admiration and respectability. He is to be of good behavior. The sixth qualification that Paul gives is that he is to be hospitable, hospitable. Hospitable means to be literally a lover of strangers. Someone that takes strangers in and cares for their needs, doesn't show partiality because of the fact that they're not a part of the church or the fact that they're a different ethnicity. Uh, Regardless of all of this, they are to to show care, to show love and hospitil- hosp- hospitality to them. Welcoming people that are not usually in their home or in their church. Note that this is not just the pastor's responsibility. We are all, as Christians, to be hospitable to strangers and other church members alike. And um, that per- perhaps in their day and age, this would have been more Uh, evident in the fact that there were there were many people traveling through itinerant pastors and others traveling through that needed lodging for a longer extent of time and you know we don't quite have that that need exactly but we do in one sense we often have missionaries who are coming back and need a place to stay whether it be for just one night or for a lengthier time and we are to show ourselves hospitable we are to care for their needs And welcome them into our home as if it's their own, showing love and care for them. If you have never shared a meal with someone in your home, let me just put it this way, you are missing out. You are missing out on the fellowship of other believers, the conversation uh, about their life, about, uh, about spiritual matters, about their needs, prayers, concerns, all of these things that are needful for us to understand, so that we can care for them better and meet their needs. Now, I know some of you out there might say, "Well, I don't, I don't like to cook. I don't like to have people into my home." Well, um, in one sense, I'd say get over that, but I'll temper that and say, if that's the case, then you know, have someone over or take someone out to a restaurant and show you know show hospitality that way, care for them in that way. And uh, if, you don't want to, if you don't want to open your home in that way. But we have to be hospitable. We have to show that we care for others. And, and it's not just in the home, but also in the church as well. When a visitor comes, we have to show ourselves well, welcoming into, into our home, that is, our body of believers where we worship. Paul gives, then, another qualification, the seventh in our list, and that is the qualification of being able to teach. Now, this qualification does emphasize spiritual giftedness. He must be a skillful teacher. That is to say, he needs to have some level of skill in explaining and applying the Word of God to the church. This can be accomplished through illustration or argumentation or persuasion, but he needs to be able to be clear in his presentation so that the audience, the the body of believers there in his presence can grasp it, understand what it means, and then apply it to their own lives. Of course, I say we have to leave room for improvement. I hope you do that for my sake. I think pastor would say the same. It is a craft that is teaching, is a craft that takes decades to sharpen. We're always seeking to improve our ability to clearly explain, exposit the word, and apply it so that it's hopeful to those who are listening. But this takes time. It takes perhaps education, taking more classes in order to understand the word better. And, uh, and we, lo- we, we leave room for that kind of improvement. But at some base level, he needs to have a giftedness, And the church needs to recognize that. They need to look upon him and say, yes, he is skillful. He can do this. Um, You know, he may need help, but we see clearly an ability to to teach. Not every believer has this gift. This is, and let me say this, this is not the skill of, of simply being a good public speaker. There are many people that are very good orators. They can speak, you know, very well. But just because you are an excellent public speaker does not mean you are fit to teach. You have to be able to explain the Word of God. It doesn't, uh, and it doesn't even mean you have to do it you know, with, with, with you know, the, the best of language. Um, one example I think of, and, and I'm not saying he wasn't an excellent preacher, but uh, Jonathan Edwards and his sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, uh, if, if you read a little bit about that, you know, I think when he preached it, it was a very dry and very monotone kind of preaching. You know, what some would say, man, he, you know, he's a bad preacher. <laughs> he has no, you know, he has no, he has no skill, no gift. Um, but that's not what we're emphasizing here. Not his ability to, you know, to speak well in the sense of, you know, you know, very just great words and full of full of wise sayings. Rather, it's the ability to explain clearly the word of God and and to apply it into the lives of, of the people there. The eighth qualification that Paul gives in this list is that the pastor is not to be given to wine, not given to wine. Now according to we know from Ephesians 5:18 clearly the, the pastor and any Christian is forbidden from drunkenness that is that is clear unmistakable what what uh what Paul is uh prohibiting at a minimum we should understand that a pastor cannot be addicted to alcohol not given to it you know the idea of it being like right there next to him as if you know the bottle's right next to him. He's addicted to it. He's given to it. Uh, it's, it's something that he can't get away from. Clearly, uh, he cannot be that kind of a man. He cannot, furthermore, be under the influence of alcohol, either, you know, the the chemical influence or 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 just simply you know, desiring it. Pastor has said this often. You know, the pastor always needs to be have a clear mind. There's no there's no circumstance where he can be his his judgment can be clouded, whether by you know alcohol or some other kind of you know substance. He needs to be clear of mind because at an, any given moment, he needs to be able to to instruct, exhort, rebuke, encourage, uh, mourn with, rejoice with, whatever the case may be. As a pastor. Um, it is best, in my mind, just to say, no alcohol at all. <laughs> Stay away from it and the dangers that it can present. Uh, do not leave any room for, um, for that in your life. As generally, I would say, as to any Christian, I think that's a good stance to take. Leave that, leave that alone. <laughs> There's other things you know, that the world has given us that are pleasurable and not sin. That we can enjoy, you know, other other drinks, other beverages, and uh, but leave that aside. Don't dabble with it. Furthermore, Paul instructs us that pastors are not to be violent. It may uh, it may be Paul's point that just after the instruction not to be given to wine, that he gives this specific instruction not to be violent. Because what often happens when people get drunk, intoxicated? They become violent people, uh, whether verbally or physically. And the pastor is not to be that way, is not to be violent, is not to be a person who is pugnacious or a bully. That's really what this word means. Pastors are not to be argumentative, but to be gentle. The idea here is closely tied to not being quarrelsome. They're not to be physically or verbally violent in their words. Even in one sense, when dealing with those who you know who are trying to subvert the truth, we are, we are to answer them with a gentle kind of spirit, hoping that they'll they'll turn and repent. We must not be violent. We saw the issue earlier on in 1 Timothy that the The results or the outcome of this false teaching was what? Disputes, quarrels. That is not to be the case. The pastor is not to be creating contentions and arguments, quarrels amongst the people. Rather, he is to be gentle. The tenth qualification that Paul gives us here in 1 Timothy 3 is that he is not to be greedy for money. Now, uh, not all uh, of the early manuscripts have this this qualification in it. However, uh, it may be the fact that in in Titus chapter 1 that this qualification is present. And so it could be something like, you know, perhaps, uh, you know, one of the, uh, you know, as these uh, copiers are thinking about these qualifications, they say, oh, yeah, I remember it's in Titus 1. And so, you know, it fits well here as well. Whether Either way, it doesn't really matter. The qualification is there that they are not to be greedy for money, whether here in First Timothy 3 or in Titus 1. Pastors are not to be, you know, just searching around from church to church, looking for the best salary, you know, the highest-paying job. Furthermore, they are not to take advantage of the generosity of the church They are to steward well God's provision and be content with what God has given them. Greed for money demonstrates a lack of priority and a self-focus rather than a focus upon God and caring for the flock. Therefore, they are not to be greedy for money. Paul then tells us that they are also to be gentle the word "gentle" means yielding or courteous, not insisting uh, on every right or letter of the law. And uh, this this uh, word is used in other passages of Scripture uh, of of the righteous requirement for all believers to be gentle, to be gentle. In First Peter two eighteen, we see this also. Uh, Titus chapter three verse two. Uh, as I said just a moment ago, this is really the uh, the opposite of what it means to be violent. They are to be gentle. Furthermore, they are not to be quarrelsome. That is, uh, you know, they are not they are to be uncontentious. They are to be peaceable kind of people, not creating, you know, not creating riots in the streets or riots in the church, but rather um, they are to be peaceable kind of peace kind of people and i think this accords well with what we saw at the beginning of chapter 2 where all christians are instructed to what live quiet and peaceable lives they're not to be you know creating disruption where you know the 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 world outside looks in at the church and says what a mess you know look how they live their lives look how you know disorderly they are look at the, the kind of quarrels, quarrels are, that are going on, the arguments that are going on. They're not to you know, be a disruption to society, nor uh, in, in and of themselves in the church. Rather, they're to be peaceable and, and the pastors to lead in this example. The last of the qualifications, which we'll look at this evening, is uh, the 13th one, which is that pastors are not to be covetous. That is to say, they are to be ungreedy and free from the love of money. So some would say, you know, again, that going back to the qualification for not being greedy for money, that, you know, this wasn't originally there and that the, the command to not be covetous already covers this idea of not being greedy for money. And I can take that. I can agree with that and, and, and be fine with that kind of view. Now, as I said at the beginning, um, Paul is specifically speaking about pastors here, but these generally apply to all Christians. We are to follow uh, the the example here and to be blameless and to be of good behavior because we are to be a light to the world. We are to demonstrate to others um, the love of Christ And we are not to uh, be a bad example to those uh, outside of the church. Look at uh, the end of verse, or look at verse 7. He says, Moreover, he must have a good testimony among those who are outside, lest he fall into reproach in the snare of the devil. If that's true for the leadership of the church, that's also true for those in the church as well. We are to have a good testimony among those outside of the church. Now, as we close this evening, I, I was trying to tie together uh, what what Paul is getting at here. You know, why these qualifications? Well, one, you know, because he needs to be a godly man, and his behavior needs to demonstrate that. But also, as I was trying to kind of correlate all that Paul is talking about here when it comes to the conduct of the church and, you know, the, the, the mission of the church, the purpose of the church, uh, I noted this, that in... Uh, in verse 15 of chapter 3, actually starting in verse 14, he says this, and this comes just after the qualifications for deacons. So, you know, he's talked about the conduct of men and women in the church, the, the conduct of pastors, the conduct of deacons, and then he says this in verses 14 and 15. He says, These things I write to you, that is Timothy, though I hope to come to you shortly, but if I am delayed, I write so that you may know how you ought to conduct yourself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of truth. And this is what I think Paul is trying to teach Timothy and help uh, the church in Ephesus understand, and that's this. The office of overseer, that is the office of pastor, is reserved for men who demonstrate these certain qualities in order to guard the truth carried by the church. In other words, the church is the protector of the truth. They are the ones guarding it. And we can't allow any kind of person just to come up here and to, you know, and to say anything he wants to say, act in any way he wants to do, any way, you know, any way he wants to act, because this would not be protecting the truth which the church is to guard. And so the office of overseer has all of these qualifications because the church is to guard the truth and keep out anyone who would, who would speak false teaching, who would conduct themselves in any kind of way that would discredit and, and uh, you know, s- subvert the truth. So as we look at uh, the passages ahead in, in the weeks, to fo- weeks following here, as we look at the rest of the qualifications of pastor and then deacons, uh, I want us to kind of keep that overarching idea in mind that uh, the reason for all of these qualifications is because the church has such a a big responsibility, uh, a high calling, really, to protect the truth, to be guardians, as it were, of the truth. And so we can't allow anyone to just come in and to take up leadership responsibilities. Let's close in a word of prayer this evening. Heavenly Father, I pray, Lord, as we go our way, that you would bless um, your people Lord, may you, may your spirit work in us to cultivate and demonstrate these kinds of qualities, Lord. God, the burden is definitely laid upon the church leadership to demonstrate this, but, Lord, we all share a similar burden, a sh- similar responsibility, that is, to, to demonstrate Christ-likeness. Lord, to be blameless and above reproach, to be sober-minded, Lord, to be of good behavior, Lord, to not be covetous, Lord, greedy for the things of this world, for monetary gain or any other kind of gain, but rather, Lord, to be a testimony to those outside of the church that, that these people are serious about God and about his word, serious about guarding the truth, serious about proclaiming that truth, living that truth in every area of life. Lord, help us, we pray. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.